from this morning, I'm sure there's nothing controversial, so we can probably just you know get out early. And uh, yes, Donna. Oh, <laughs> the five people who listen to the podcast want to hear. Now I'm okay, nervous. Okay, it was four last week, but okay, okay. Well, you're talking about depression. Yes. And how it was a sign of un, unconfessed uh, sin. Am it I correct can on be. that? Okay. It can be. All, I was trying to make a rather restrained statement this morning because we didn't have time to go fully into it. All I'm saying, all I said this morning is that um, the Bible speaks to joy, hope, depression, sorrow as in a spiritual category. And we know that at times, at times, depression is a result of spiritual issues. Um, not, not necessarily always, but I'm saying if you go to a therapist, if you go to a psychologist, they will not have as an option in their categories, this might be unconfessed sin. So what I'm saying is, they, they, at the very least, the Bible and psychology need to share territory, at the very least. Um, now I could go into a more nuanced development of that, but that's what I meant to communicate. I'm not saying that in every instance, depression is caused by unconfessed sin. Not saying at all. I certainly think we'd acknowledge that in many instances, that's what's going on. Um, and if you're going to somebody who would never even consider that a possibility, there's a problem. That's, that's, does that make sense? That a, 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 a psychologist or psychiatrist who isn't even gonna have that as an option, that's a problem. That, that's all I was trying to say this morning. A lot more could be said, but I'd wanna be nuanced and clear and not make a straw man and not overstate the case. So that's all I'm trying to say right now is at the very least, there's an overlap of domains. But what I think you'll find in most cases is where psychology claims their domain, they wanna push out the Bible and spiritual issues. Um, as if, get out of our space. And that's, that's what I'm saying, you're, you're challenging the sufficiency of scripture. Does that, that make sense? I just have two friends and yes. I know that they probably wouldn't be able to go on without the medications. And so I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't think they went to a psychologist maybe, but a doctor. Well, a psychiatrist know. is the one who's going to have be able to prescribe medicine. Oh. Um, well, and the thing with the medicine that people, the people get confused with is because, they, because the medicine appears to, or not appears to, does alleviate and minimize the symptoms, the conclusion is it must be a physiological um, problem. That type of thinking is not necessarily true. I'll give you an example. If I sit down on a thumbtack, I will experience um, throbbing pain in my posterior disorder. You give me some Vicodin, that will go away. I didn't have a Vicodin deficiency, did I? So removing symptoms does not necessarily, it may, but it does not necessarily mean we've addressed the issue, right? So, so just because the pill takes away the depression doesn't prove it was a physiological disorder. The simplest way is that if people stop taking the meds, it stops working, no one gets cured. No one gets cured with the meds. The meds treat symptoms. And there may be cases where that's entirely appropriate. Again, I'm not saying that's all, you know, that's all stupid and throw it out. I'm just saying we are too impressed with the claims from that field that want to argue it's all physiological, it's all um, in your cells and in your um, neurons and in your, um, your brain synapses and stuff. Maybe. The Bible does speak to it, and so any approach that's going to say, close your Bible, let's do the science, is wrong. That's, that's all I'm saying right now. It, there's a lot more that could be said. That's all I'm saying right now, though. Does that make sense? 
Yes, but if the person, um, should a person say to them, um, do you have some unconfessed sin in your life? Maybe that would help you. Or you probably should talk to them, ask them where it came from. The problem is the the, the description of depression. There's a um, I don't know if we have any more copies out there, but there's a really helpful um, CD on depression by a guy named Charles Hodges. Charles Charles Hodge Hodges is the the uh, theologian, right? And he's a medical doctor, and he talks about how it used to be 30 years ago that clinical depression was sustained depression lasting over a period of three months, and here was the crucial key, and the person couldn't explain why they were depressed. In other words, it used to be that mourning and grief were understood to be normal, okay? So your spouse died, you, you just can't, contracted a horrible disease, and you're depressed, that, they understood. So grieving and grief was understood to be a legitimate healthy, healthy category. That qualification in the most recent DSM-5 completely removed. So now, clinical depression, you can have good reason to be depressed. You know, um, the guy who, because of his drinking, destroyed his family, lost his job, has good reason to be sorrowful. But now it doesn't matter what the reason is. If you have these symptoms, you have depression, they'll give you a pill. And I'm just saying, you want to try to talk to the person, what led them into this, how they get where they are. And you may very well figure out that there are things, things that they're doing, things that they're thinking, things that they're believing that at the very least are contributing to the way that they're feeling. So no, I wouldn't just start, you have some unconfessed sin. But if you found out, when did you get depressed? Well, after I had the affair and my wife left me, well, now you've got some stuff to work with. Because that sounds like a lot of grounds for why a person might be sorrowful and sullen and, and, and you know, you get, does that make sense? So I'd want to ask them, just ask them questions, tell their story, what got them, how they get to where they are, and see if you could see some things. Maybe you won't, but see if there are some things that might account for some of that. Because I would suggest that until you deal with those aspects, they'll keep our emotions, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on. Our emotions are like the lights on our car that tell us, you know, check engine and stuff, you know. And so I think sometimes taking meds are like putting duct tape over the check engine light. Well, it stops flashing and you don't see it anymore, but if, if, if it's not dealing with the underlying problem, I'm not saying in every instance, but let's just say you've got somebody who's depressed because they've destroyed their life because of their sin. I would suggest that until they deal with that, it's going to keep yielding that fruit of depression. And taking a pill that makes them not feel bad, in some respects, is actually getting in the way of curing the problem. In the same way that if I keep taking Vicodin so I don't feel, what I need to do is pull the tack out and apply some ointment and, you know, and, and let it heal. But if I keep taking Vicodin to make my pain go away, in some senses it gets in the way of actually healing. So all I'm saying is that can be what's taking place. I'm not saying that's always what's taking place. So are you saying that um, instead of going to a psychologist a psychiatrist, um, that people should seek their um, pastors to talk with. My instance is uh, uh, my friend lost a child, yeah. and she hasn't been able to deal with that. that so. That's a terrible grief and a terrible, a terrible um, cause for sorrow and grief. And yeah, our, our culture... One of, the, one of the hallmarks that our culture is young. We, have, we live in a very young country. In, when you look at something like China or, or, or the Asian countries, and we, one of the evidences of the youth of our culture is we really don't know how to process grief and, and shame and honor 
I mean, you get to these honor cultures, not that the way they process it is healthy, but at least they recognize what a powerful force shame and honor is. Um, and, and our basic mentality is everyone, no matter what, should feel good no matter what. So if you've got negative self-image, something's wrong. If you feel bad, we don't have categories for grief and mourning. And so somebody loses a child and they've never seen, they've never learned, they don't know how to process that, they don't know how to grieve. And all their friends just tell them, you shouldn't feel bad, feel good. And then eventually they take a pill and they start feeling good. They still haven't processed. This friend needs to process and think rightly through and come to grips with and grapple through. The loss of a child is a terrible thing. Um, and until they do that, they're going to probably, to whatever degree, it's, I mean, I'm going to suggest that a lot of their sorrow, if not all of their sorrow, is coming from the way they're thinking about, the way they're interpreting, how they feel about the loss of their child, which is something that's going to take time to work through. I mean, biblically, there's a thing called grieving. Um, and, and even in our culture previously, we understood that that was something. But we, we don't have those categories anymore. And so if you don't feel good right now, something's wrong, and we've got a pill to make you feel better, it doesn't always help deal with the problem. It, 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 the same thing, like a simple example. If I've destroyed my life through alcohol abuse and I meet the qualifications for clinical depression, until I actually stop drinking and start picking the pieces up and making amends, nothing's going to get better, but you could make me feel better. In that case, it's counterproductive. The feelings are meant to drive me to change, just like the flashing light on your car dashboard is meant you to go to the mechanic. If you just cover up the flashing light, you're not gonna go to the mechanic. And if you change the feelings that are meant to drive me to my knees and say, what have I done? And take ownership on my life and what I've done. That's unproductive. Now I'm not saying in every instance that's what's taking place. I'm just saying in in the secular psychological field, they have no other category than naturalistic causes. They're never going to say, go deal with your life. They're all, that's that's what I'm saying right now. is that something that you do then? Yes. That pastors should yes. counsel people that way? Yes. Okay. Up until the last, here's a little history on counseling um, in the church. So the modernism, the enlightenment rises up, anti-supernaturalism rises up, and in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you have a response to that called fundamentalism. Um, Jay Gresham, Machen, some other guys, um, if you've heard of the term fundamentalism, what it started was, as modernism was making inroads into the church, massive anti-supernaturalism was also coming into the church. And so people were discounting the virgin birth, they were discounting the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the miracles in the Bible. Um, and so this was taking place in the church. And the response was a bunch of pastors and churches arguing certain truths were fundamental, they were foundational. And so you get the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, the miracles of Jesus, the, resurrect, the physical resurrection, the return of the Lord. These are the fundamentals. And so they basically circled the wagons and defended the fundamentals against the onslaught of anti-supernaturalism. Sadly, one of the things that wasn't listed as fundamental was soul care. And so, since psychology pretty much arose in the last century, into prominence as a science, um, that was one of the things the church, by and large, surrendered. So prior to the uh, 1960s, when a guy named Jay Adams, uh, working at, at, at um, not Princeton, Westminster, um, began doing some courses on practical pastoral counseling, he began to write some books, and a movement of biblical counseling rose up from there. Prior to 1960s, you gotta go back to the Puritans 
defined Christians dealing with real issues. Now they did, the Puritans have got some wonderful writings on hope and assurance and grief and sorrow and keeping the heart, but from, from then till the 1960s, it was given over by the church, and so when the psychological field came up, I mean, you do some research, there's over 3,000 different schools of psychology. Whether you got Freudian, I mean, and with radically different assumptions and starting points. So Freudian is the notion that you're an iceberg, and your, your conscious mind is the bit above the water, but your subconscious and your id and your ego, they're really what's driving everything, and they're unconscious, and they're below the conscious level, and so the Freudians could try to dig down there. But then you get to like B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. My undergraduate's in biblical counseling. I've done some work on that. And, but B.F. Skinner couldn't be further apart. Skinner called Freudian a ghost hunter, said he was seeing ghosts, because Skinner doesn't care why. Skinner just, what's it gonna take to make you stop? So Skinner famously said, given enough control over the environment, he could make a woman go out to the mailbox on all fours like a dog. Give me enough control of the environment and I can control the person. That's behaviorism. You ever see Dr. Phil? He's largely a behaviorist. My point is, it's not as though psychology has come up with some unified and agreed upon truth. There's warring factions and have been for the last couple decades. So when someone says psychology, I want to know what school of psychology. Maybe it's third wave, Jungian. I mean, and, and all sorts of hybrids of that. So it's not even like over the last 40, 50 years, okay, what have you guys agreed upon as true? There's not much even there which isn't to say there isn't some useful things there. I'm just, it gets presented like it's a hard science, like math or something, and it's, it couldn't be further from the truth in that regard. So, um, <laughs> this is a long history, to say yes. When, so my, when someone talks to me and it, it describes a symptom that falls within every good work, hope, fear, anxiety, anger, joy, sorrow, grief, my assumption is the Bible has something for that. Now, it may turn out that like in the case of uh, a thyroid disorder, the body's contributing to it as well. And so I'm not saying don't go see a doctor. I'm just saying my assumption is the Bible has something for that. And it abs- if, if, if God speaks to those categories, God does have something for that. So I'm mainly resisting the notion of, oh no, don't see a pastor, go see a doctor. Well, why not both? You know, that's mainly what I'm speaking to right now. Um, to say much more than that would be a l- is if you think I'm talking along and being nuanced and qualifying now, if to really speak on where to draw that line would be even trickier. We can go there, but that's what I'm trying to say now is, is at the very least, why not both? Um, does that make sense? Yes, and thank oh. you um, <laughs> very much so. No problem, no problem at all. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Corey and I went to um, listen to a gentleman speak that feels that every ailment, I think he almost said every ailment, was due to past sin, either by your parents or by you or by some generational thing. This gentleman would do well to hear Jesus' response to his disciples when they say, upon seeing a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither. It was for the glory of God. Anyone who wants to say all sickness is due to past sin disagrees with Jesus. Just because some sickness can be caused because of sin does not mean all sickness does. The Bible is emphatically clear on that. Um, so that, that would be my short response. Now, if you want to discuss how much, now I don't know. 
but certainly not all. The, the Jesus' disciples believed that, and Jesus corrected them for it. And when Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach, you'd imagine that Paul would say, just repent of that sin, and then your stomach will get better. But he doesn't. He says, drink a little wine because you're, for the sake of your stomach. So that would appear to be um, also another area of sickness or illness that had nothing to do with spiritual matters. But flip it on the other side, get back to the issue of a doctor and medicine and, and naturalism. We know that in Corinth, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, because they were taking the Lord's Supper improperly, many were sick and many were dead. Imagine getting that diagnosis from your doctor. You know, I've just, I, I need to ask you, sir, um, have you perchance been coming to the Lord's table in a flippant manner? That might explain your symptoms. Yet we know biblically that happens. I don't know how frequently that happens. But again, modern naturalistic science is going to say that never, that no doctor is going to come with that as a prescription. So again, a certain amount of wariness is all I'm throwing in there. If all you've got is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. If all of your understanding is this stuff is based physiologically and biologically, there is no soul, there are no spiritual issues, then surprise, surprise, you're going to find a physical cause for everything. So just entertain a certain amount of healthy incredulity. Um, okay, other questions? Oh, whoa, whoa, microphone. The chairman of the elder board speaketh. We, we need to get this on the tape for posterity. It is good. Yeah, I think it's always good that we look inside ourselves, you know, if, if, there's, if there's sin, if, there's, if we have health issues on certain things, yeah, I mean, I think you need to examine that. Hey, am I, there's something that's causing this, but man, you know, you go back to the book of Job and just listen to that dialogue, mm. and, you know, <laughs> because Job's friends, for the most part, they just all told him, basically, it's because of you have sin. This is why you are sick and why God has brought all these things on you, and, and the reality is that was not true. Right. And um, so it just, you got to be really careful with that. Uh, yeah, my, my uh, first thing, whenever I get a sick or the flu or something, the first thing I want to check, Lord, you trying to get my attention over something? Because if he is, I'd like to deal with it and move on. <laughs> and I believe those are prayers God answers. You know, you go to Psalm 19 or, or Psalm 139, but the author recognizes, I don't even know my own heart. Search me and try me. See if there's some grievous way. God, am I doing something? Are you trying to get my attention? I'm pretty sure those are prayers God always answers, that God isn't going to say, well, you have to figure it out yourself. No. And if something doesn't come to mind really quickly, then I just move on and assume that's not the case. I usually start there just because on the off chance it is. <laughs> that's the fastest way to deal with it. So I think it's a healthy thing to take a moment when something happens. God, are you trying to get my attention over something? Is there something going on? We know that can happen. But then not to like chase your tail for weeks at a time, but if, if something clearly doesn't come to mind, if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring to your attention something clear, move on. And, and let's assume this is part of the sickness and disease that just happens from living in a sin-cursed world. Ron Ludwig. That, um, talking about sin, when I was um, first diagnosed with cancer in 2010, that was one of the kind of self-assessments I did mm. was, you know, so what, what did I do wrong? Mm. And um, it took a while for me to fully accept that it wasn't anything I did wrong. It was an opportunity for 
God to use me. And so right. that was kind of uh, difficult to understand why he picked me, because I really didn't want to volunteer for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, you can go too far one way or the other. We can just say it never happens. Well, that's unbiblical. We know it does happen from time to time. And then to say it always happens, the Bible equally condemns that. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. I think it's good to do it. It's always good to periodically, Lord, am I stepping out of line? Lord, am I, is that something going on? And then move on, you know, and, uh, or deal with what God shows you. So, absolutely, absolutely. Other thoughts, questions? I want to, oh, then I, I got to bring up one other challenge to sufficiency, but let's go. Zach. Um, I was wondering about, I got to figure out which point it was on here, but um, when you're talking about like uh, naturalistic science and how sometimes that challenges the Bible and oftentimes, because it's science, we can just assume that's true yeah. or people can. And right. um, I was wondering about sometimes like, can we get the Bible wrong when Abs we're interpreting oh, ab something? Ab absolutely. And that's why I tried to pick, for example, things that most people don't argue the Bible teaches, like the flood. I didn't deal specifically with creation because even amongst Christians, there's the. It's one thing to say, what has God said? And that's a great discussion to have. I don't think Genesis went into his poetry, but like, we can absolutely have that discussion. Is it poetry? Is it not poetry? Like, that's cool, right? But once we've agreed upon what God has said, that wins. So I tried to pick examples like um, the flood, or simply Adam and Eve, and the distance in time from Adam and Eve till now. Because again, no one's, you read Luke, Luke thinks he can connect Jesus to Adam through descent. And even if he skipped a generation here or there, we have to be in the category of, of thousands, not millions. Um, and the issues of gender, and, and male and female God made, these are all clear issues. So I tried to use those as examples, but absolutely, we need to go check our math. People thought the Bible taught the earth was flat, right? The Bible doesn't teach the earth is flat. In fact, the Bible talks about the earth and the sun having a course and a circle and a circuit. And, you know, but people in, in the Middle Ages thought that. So yeah, we do want to check and make sure we're understanding the Bible rightly. Absolutely. So if the Bible conflicts with what we think we're seeing in the world, by all means, go back and check your math. By all means. Um, by all means, go back and check your math. Don't just assume you've got it right. Absolutely. So I guess if there is an issue like, um, like with creation and how there's different, you know, people in the church who have different kind of views about the length of, um, you know, the age of the earth and stuff like that. Mm. If you're talking with someone and they know that and they're like, oh, well, it's not like everyone in the church thinks that the earth is this age, then right. you just kind of go back to them and say, well, here's why I think that the right. Bible says this. And well, I'm going to make a distinction. I, I, I will strongly argue that I think the Bible is not unclear about creation. But when you're discussing what the Bible means, you're having a very different discussion than is the Bible true. So I want to make that distinction really clear. God honoring people can be confused about what the Bible means. There are passages I'm confused about. Baptisms for the dead. Paul talks about. I'm not entirely sure what that means. There's plenty of passages. I'm not really sure what that means. And so having confusion over what a passage of the Bible means and saying, help me understand, let's talk about it, that's good, right? Um, that's a different discussion than the Bible's wrong. 
Now, I think Genesis is a lot clearer than some people want to let on, and I suspect the reason why all of a sudden people are trying to say it's confusing is because they want to square it with what they think's going on over here. I suspect that's the reason. It's, it's, no, it's not for nothing that all these new theories on what to do with Genesis and its poetry arose just about the same time that, that a lot of scientists were suggesting the Earth was a lot older than it had been previously thought. Um, and I can go into that, but I just want to make that distinction separately, that when Christians are saying, I'm not sure Genesis teaches that, that's a good discussion. Now we're talking about hermeneutics, interpretation, and scripture, and we're not talking about inerrancy. We're not talking about the authority of scripture. We're just talking about what does it mean, which is a different discussion than someone who says, oh no, I, I get that the Bible teaches this. It's just wrong, right? That's the distinction I'm making. Personally, um, the biggest issues with creation, and we did a series a, a couple of years ago on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where I tried to deal with this a lot more fully. I'll give you the two-minute version. Any attempt to put death before the fall is gonna radically alter the biblical storyline. That, that's the biggest problem. I, I had a chance to talk to Tim Keller, who believes in an old earth, but, uh, but in Adam and Eve being made specifically in the garden. I ran into him in a halt corridor at our Gospel Coalition conference. I said, hey, you're Tim Keller. He said, yes, I am. I said, hey, can I ask you a question? You believe in an old earth, right? He said, yes, I do. And he said, but I believe in a real Adam and a real Eve that were made in a real garden, they ate a real fruit. I said, awesome. What do you do with death before the fall? To which Tim Keller said to me, smiled, looked sheepishly, said, that's the question, isn't it? Yep. And you're like, I wish you had an answer for it. No, and he said, some, no, he said something on the lines of, if Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, maybe God could apply the consequence of the fall prior to eating the fruit. But he, he, he was freely recognizing it. Like, I don't know, it's tough, good question type of thing. You know, and that is the problem because if you read 1 Corinthians 15, our whole hope is that death is an intruder. Death is foreign. And Jesus Christ Death and resurrection allows Paul to boast, death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. So when someone you know dies and we grieve and we mourn, the Christian can say, absolutely right, amen, that is awful. Let me tell you the lengths God went to so there would be no more death and dying, right? As opposed to, no, death, decay, and dying is part of God's good creation in this process. And it went on for millions of years before any man or any woman ate anything. You got a very different story if death is part of the good creation as opposed to death is the result of sin and here's what God did to undo death, to remove death. So you're gonna have real big problems theologically if you wanna introduce death before the fall. Um, so that's, that's the first thing I'll say. That. The second thing is um, the problem about Genesis 1 and 2 being poetry is everyone's gonna have to appeal to authorities because I'm not an authority on Hebrew poetry. Uh, Pastor Daniel, who's Hebrew, is much better than mine, is not an authority on Hebrew poetry. So we can, I can cite my authority and someone else, well, this guy says it is poetry. Go to Exodus 20. I want to settle that issue there. The 10 words, the 10 commandments that God gave, nobody suggests their poetry. These are law, lex, command. Moses, who wrote Genesis, wrote Exodus. And here we'll see Moses' own commentary on the creation account in the fourth commandment. And I, I argued in that message on Genesis a couple of years ago at Christmas time, and I'll argue now that Exodus 20 really closes the door 
on the other, because the other way people try to introduce millions of years is to argue that creation took place in two steps. First, God created the heavens and the earth. They were without form and void. They're a tohu, a bohu. It's a Hebrew. They're chaotic. And then God waits, and who knows how much, how long, how much time goes by till God shows up and day one occurs. Okay? And I will grant that that view has the advantage of not introducing death before the fall. So good for that view. However, I don't know how it's going to square this. Ten Commandments, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Why, Moses? For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. I don't think that allows for he made stuff, waited a couple million years, and then started organizing it because he made everything that's in them in six days. He didn't just order everything that's in them in six days. He made, created everything that is in them in six days. This is not poetry. The Ten Commandments are not poetic. They're, they're pretty literal. So I, I don't know how you get around Moses' own commentary on what he wrote. And if you want to say, well, days for a day, there can be a thousand years for the Lord, the problem you run into then is he told us we're to work six days and take a day off. So are you going to make that mean a really long period of time? Because hermeneutically, without a really good reason, when the same thing occurs in the same passage, it needs to mean the same thing. So we work six days and take a day off because God works six days and take a day off. You kind of need to have those mean the same thing without a really good reason not to. And so that's really tricky and problematic for the person who wants to squeeze millions of years in there. So I, I don't want to spend a ton more time on it right here now just because there's a whole Sunday devoted to it. But that's my short, my short answer. I have a real problem with people who want to put death before the fall. I think that really, really starts to unravel, honestly, the gospel pretty fast. If you have to explain consistently how death, dying, disease, and suffering is part of a very good creation, that where nothing's wrong, there's no sin, it's just the way things are, that really starts to unravel the story. And I think passages like Exodus 20, whatever you want to make of Genesis 1 or 2 being poetry, I don't think it's poetry, but I don't have the authority, I don't have the expertise to tell you that. I can only quote people who tell you that, so rather than playing that game, Exodus 20, not poetry, and here's Moses summing up the creation account. So that's, that's uh, any more questions on that, but that's what I'll say right now. Jake Hopper. Tying that in with what you were saying earlier today, Jeremy, about how sometimes as Christians we tend to get nervous when it seems like science is going, you know, in yeah. a direction that's going to be challenging for us. Um, I've known a few scientists and a few professors as a biology major in undergrad, and you are not going to gain acceptance or respect from a scientist by taking the position, okay, well, let's start with your truth, and, and I will work my way back to Genesis from there, okay? Right. I'll give you what you believe, and I'll show you how I can work that back into Genesis. Um, I just haven't seen that work out well, because it's like, I'm gonna give you your assumption, let me show you how what I believe may also be able to fit in there. Right. That, that you're, then you're messing with, um, you know, because perhaps you're not confident in it or have questions about it, you feel like you need to grant them their premise first, and they're not going to respect you for that. They're going to say, yeah, that you won't reach them that way, in my experience. I, no, I agree. Let me bounce off that. Go to Second Peter 3. 
One of the things I find very encouraging is that Peter, you know, he has that Babe Ruth moment where from the plate he points to the, you know, Babe Ruth points to, yeah, I can do sports. Um, I sport. Um, <laughs> Babe Ruth points to the bleachers where he's going to hit the ball out of the park. Peter anticipates some of the scoffing and objections that are going to come down the pike. Let's see how accurate he gets here. Second Peter 3. Okay? <clears throat> this is fascinating. What Peter, what Peter predicts, nails right on the head. Okay. Um, let's just start verse one. This is, how, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, and he quotes them, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Does anyone know the name of that philosophy? All things continue as they were forever. Uniformitarianism. uniformitarianism. Give Bryce five points. That's uniformitarianism. Okay. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So what are, what are they ignoring? Creation. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They deny creation and they deny the flood. Huh. Peter predicts that people will come holding to a form of uniformitarianism who deny creation and deny the flood. That's pretty striking. By the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And he goes on. So Peter predicts that people holding to a form of uniformitarianism are going to deny creation and the flood. And they're going to do it deliberately. Yep. <laughs> so I feel a little better when, hey, everyone around me denies creation and the flood. That shouldn't be a big surprise. You know, and I feel a little better that Peter, 2,000 years ago, was like, here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you how it's going to play out. There are going to come some people who are going to say, you know, and that's, if you want to get into it, that's really, um, I can't remember his name, the Scottish skeptic. Um, he's not a Christian. The one with the problem of induction. What's his name? Um, oh, good grief. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Zeb? Where's Zeb when I need him? He's not here. Oh, man, what's his name? Ah, it'll come to me. Um, but, but here's the problem with induction. Induction, there's deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, and science involves inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning, yeah, if you just, David Hume, David Hume, there we go. David Hume and the problem with induction. Not a friend of Christians by any stretch, but David Hume brought up the problem with induction. Um, deductive reasoning starts with the premise, like, um, I'll give you some deductive reasoning. Gravity pulls things without a force will be pulled down towards the ground. So I'm going to predict what will happen when I let go of my glasses. So I move from the general to the particular. The general truth about gravity, the particular instance of my glasses. That's deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is the opposite. We're going to do a thousand and one particulars. We're going to drop glasses and rocks and we're going to drop chairs and we're going to drop iPads and we're just going to observe all that and eventually after enough things fall to the ground, after enough particulars happen, we're going to reach up to and make a generalized truth that gravity happens. That's inductive reasoning. Make sense? You get the distinction between deductive and inductive reasoning. The problem 
within the, not the problem, the the um, the weakness of inductive reasoning is twofold. One, that only works if you have an adequate sample. I'll, I'll give you an illustration a professor of mine gave about the inductive chicken. Um, there was a chicken who was in a chicken coop, and the chicken was a scientific chicken, and the chicken was conducting research, and it noticed that every day a hand would reach into the chicken coop and give it food and take some of its eggs and change its water. And after a couple hundred days of that, the chicken published his hypothesis, which was this hand exists solely for my benefit. This hand is here to do me good. Well, until the day when the hand reached in, grabbed the chicken by the neck, broke it, and dressed it for dinner, didn't have a big enough sample size, <laughs> right? No, no, and that's the problem, is we simply don't know how much of a sample size we have. We've gathered as much data as we can, but is that nearly enough to make an adequate hypothesis? We don't know. Um, we do the best we can. I'm not saying we throw it away, but you want to know where, where can a weakness, where can error creep into inductive reasoning? That's precisely where error can creep into inductive reasoning. Um, the other danger with, the other problem with, um, with inductive reasoning, and this is what David Hume pointed out, is that, let's see if I can, okay, we've got five minutes. We'll try to do the problem with inductive reasoning in five minutes. Okay, here we go. Okay, we can do this. <laughs> it assumes the future will be like the past. And David Hume who's trying to be a consistent thinker is saying to people that want to say things like, we'll only accept those things that are proven scientifically. Which the first question you should ask is, how did you scientifically prove that definition? Oh, you didn't. Okay, so you just contradicted yourself. So when someone says, well, I only accept as evidence those things that are proven scientifically, your first response should be, how did you arrive at that criterion? What scientific evidence do you have to support that criteria? Oh no, you chose it arbitrarily, okay. So amazingly, when you exclude the supernatural from the get-go, it doesn't show up in the answer. Amazing how that works, okay. The second thing though is, Hume is pointing out, what is the scientific basis for assuming the future will be like the past, that past examples and cases will reflect future cases? And if you answer, well every other time we've assumed that it's worked out, what are you doing? You're reasoning from the past to the future, which is exactly the thing you're trying to prove, which is circular. Let me say that again. What, if you ask the person, on what basis do you assume that the future will be like the past, that just because yesterday when I dropped a rock and every day before that it fell, that it'll happen tomorrow? Why are you assuming the future will be like the past? If you say, as your answer, every other time that I have assumed the future would be like the past, it turned out to be the case. You have just, you've just assumed the thing you're proving, which is to say, every other time in the past that I assumed the future would be like the past it was, doesn't help you get any closer to why you should assume the future would be like the past. You're reasoning in a circle. Now, the Christian has an answer to that question. There is a God who set up the world, and he put the earth on its axis, and he brings the stars out, and he says to the seas, this far and no further, and he orders seasons and times, and he holds it by the power of his word, and he has done it in a way mindful of us that we are but thus, that there is pattern and rhythm and repetition and constancy in the world, and so we're gonna search it out and see what God has done. And that, that's why Newton, Kepler, those guys were, the, were some of the founding scientists. You wanna throw God out of the equation, you got a pretty big problem with induction. As David Hume, no friend of religion, pointed out. He was just saying, guys, we got a problem here foundational methodological problem. Most people, there's really not that much of an answer to Hume, most people just say you could ignore it because science works. But Hume's not arguing science works, he's arguing why does it work? 
How can we justify it working? Which is what really there isn't much of an answer for. Um, okay, other questions, four minutes, three minutes to go, five minutes to go. You can YouTube David Hume, The Problem of Induction. Someone far more articulate than me will explain it for you. It's fascinating stuff, but Christians have answers for these things. A Christian worldview can account for an orderly world that behaves in repetitive, predictable ways. Um, but if everything is chaos and chance, you have a much more difficult time explaining order. Um, you know. Yo, you hear me? Yes. Yo, yeah, there we go. Sorry. So, yeah, you know, it's always interesting on these kind of debates, uh, especially on, on, with creation. I have no problem with non-Christians, people that don't believe the Bible, questioning it. And, and sure. Of course, they're going to. They're, by design, I mean, they're, they're wanting to prove it wrong. They don't believe it. In fact, they're opposed to it. Problem I always have is when the word clearly states it, or at least is um, so much alludes to it that Christians are the ones that question it. You know why? Why does it have to be an old earth? Because somebody challenged you. Why does it have to be whatever? Because somebody challenged you, so you go try to find a way that maybe that fits. No, he just the word says it was six days and the seventh day he rested. Um, it just—it always bothers me when Christians go down that road. It's like, what's the purpose there? What, right. You know, are you trying to accommodate, or right. are you really looking for the truth? And then that's precisely, Al. I'll close with my point this morning: is that if we, if we, in Luther's day, Rome was trying to hedge in and squeeze him with scripture by elevating two other sources to equal level of truth, and claiming scripture at a smaller and smaller domain. And I'm saying, we're doing the same, we have the same problem today. It's not coming from the magisterium and the Pope, but science, science, quote unquote, scientists say, you always hear that, you know, um, is now being viewed as an equal truth claim of scripture. And then we're making the circle that scripture gets to speak to smaller and smaller and smaller. So in many cases, Christians say, well, the Bible really only is true and authoritative when it speaks to salvation. And anytime it speaks outside of salvation, well, you aren't meant to take that step further. The Bible is only useful for salvation. You know, and, and again and again and again, I forget the quote, but every turn of the archaeologist's spade confirms the Bible. I, I don't think ultimately there is any conflict between what the Bible reports and what is. Sometimes it takes a while for the science to catch up. For a long time, they were mocking the Bible. There are no Hittites, no evidence of the Hittites. Guess what they just found in the last 50 years? Hittites. Then they said there was no King David, not a single evidence of King David. Then they found a Philistine war memorial celebrating a victory over King David. And it, on and on it goes. But there were 20, 30 years where a bunch of Christians felt really nervous because, man, there's no evidence for King David. What I'm saying is relax a little bit, give it time. It'll work out. Um, that's the, if we really believe the Bible is inerrant, if we really believe in this authority, if, if we believe in sola scriptura, we should have a little bit more confidence. It will eventually work itself out. It's possible we've misunderstood the Bible on something, like the earth being flat. Fair enough, let's go back, check our math. But at the end, there ultimately is no conflict between science and religion, none whatsoever. Um, that's, that's the biggest thing I just challenge you with. Don't, don't feel defensive. Um, we've got truth with a capital T here, and no one else does. And on that, we will call it a day. Thank you. And if you don't have a copy of the R.C. Sproul um, messages, get them. They're fantastic. Um, God bless.